loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Jessica DeLong. Jessica is a Brooklyn-based author, journalist, editor, and book collaborator and coach. Her book, Saved at the Seawall, Stories from the September 11th Boat Lift, is the definitive history of the largest ever waterborne evacuation that rescued nearly 500,000 people from Manhattan. Anchored in eyewitness accounts and written by a marine engineer who served at Ground Zero, Saved weaves together the stories of people rescued that day and the mariners who saved them. Her book, My River Chronicles, Rediscovering the Work that Built America, won the 2010 ASJA Outstanding Book Award for Memoir. She writes for CNN.com and collaborates on nonfiction books, including memoir, history, trauma, psychology, and neuroscience, racism, gender, parenting, and justice. She's taught writing with Voices from War and the Sackett Street Writers Workshop. And she's a U.S. Coast Guard licensed marine engineer who served aboard the retired 1931 New York City fireboat John J. Harvey for two decades, 11 years as chief. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm glad to have you. We were, we were just chatting before we went on air um, about the value of, of, you know, I said your book brought me back to that day and week uh, after the 9-11 um, attacks and the fall of the World Trade Towers. And you said, oh, I'm sorry. And I said, no, I'm not. <laughs> you know? So yeah. uh, I just want to start by saying it was illuminating to go back there from a different angle, um, from the angle of how people coped with that moment on the spot, because of course I was in California coping in a very different way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, one of the biggest honors that I've had in collecting these stories is, is to have my perspective on this material shift over time um, and spending two decades immersed in, in this story in one way or another. Um, I have come to it in very different ways and coming to it again in the midst of the global pandemic has also, you know, made me see things differently again. Um, and so it's painful material, um, for sure, but really the story is is very much about who we are as humans. When when terrible things happen, it's amazing how goodness springs up and how we how we take care of each other. And so often the common narrative that we hear is not that. And um, so it's really been an incredible experience to be able to 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 chronicle that this this incredible example in our history of that taking place. And I, I guess I would say as someone who, to, for want of a better way to put it, I work in resiliency, post-traumatic growth, all of that. Mm -hmm. The growth doesn't take away the trauma, but it's 
more reliably present than the trauma in terms of how our lives go forward. And I wonder if you, certainly that day, and we'll get to the details of that day um, mm -hmm. in a second, but certainly that day must have changed your perspective on particularly working on the Hudson River. I lived when I was a kid in a tall building overlooking the Hudson Bridge, you know, the mm -hmm. George Washington Bridge. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with that river and, it, you know, very, it was one of the more peaceful things I looked at that, that couple of years, mm, <laughs> honestly, right. you know, yeah. so it must have just changed how everyone saw that place to, to then be trying to get people off the island by way of that river. I was trying to imagine that. You know, it's interesting. I can't, I certainly can't speak for other people um, in terms of their perspectives changing on the river, but there are a couple sort of landmarks in the events unfolding that, that give some clues. And one is that first off, there were some people who had no concept of of even that Manhattan is an island, which is not to say that they were ignorant to the reality of it, but it's it's just people. I live in I live in Brooklyn, and um, even somebody who is here in New York City, it's very easy to forget that Manhattan yes. is an island, and and it is also there's you know a lot of history we could talk about that brought people's awareness of the waterfront um, really brought sort of sheltered people from the waterfront and people turned their backs on the waterfront that sort of reduced that awareness. But one thing that's really interesting is that the people who, certainly the people who took the ferry every day from New Jersey, for example, it was their first thought about the quickest way off the island. Huh. But then there were all sorts of people who really had no concept of a ferry going to New Jersey and sort of stumbled across it. And this was their first time on the river. I heard that over and over again. And then you have the mariners who, um, even though this is their home harbor um, or one of their home harbors, because of course, you know, people who work on work boats, some of them are in the same place over and over again, and some of them are in many, many ports um, and travel back and forth. But the there was so much different about that day because you have vessels operating in completely uh, unfamiliar territory, even though the river is the same, like they're pulling up to the seawall, which they would never do. Some of those right. vessels, tugboats, for example, right? So it's um, there was this interesting shift in the the very familiar becoming completely unrecognizable, and that's a thread and a theme that happened on land, certainly where you couldn't even navigate right. the geography of the World Financial Center and the World Trade Center, but also in a sense it happened on the water as well. So I, I think that's really interesting. And you know, I was thinking about uh, there's a little lighthouse in the in the middle of the bay mm -hmm. near where mm -hmm. where I live, and we went there overnight. It's a bed and breakfast. We uh. went there overnight, my wife and I once, and uh, the to, in order to be the couple who runs that place, there has to be a boat captain and a chef. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and when we were when when we were taking the boat over, it was a tiny little boat. You know, mm -hmm. uh, but the the guy was talking about having to be tr fully trained as a captain. And uh, so as I was reading the book, I was thinking all of those people, even though it had not been relevant, were fully trained with all the rules. And then they had to bring that into play, but also forget it and kind of improvise because yes. it was so different, wasn't it? 
Absolutely. And I mean, you've really hit upon a really powerful lesson or sort of take home message from what happened um, is that, I mean, in a sense, working, working on the water, working on a work boat, it's, it is the norm that everything is fine until all of a sudden it's not. And that's what you're <laughs> trained for is those moments when all of a sudden it's no longer okay. Um, and those crises are just sort of built in because there's a storm, because there's, you know, an obstruction, because there's any number of things, a mechanical failure. And so that is a part of the 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 sort of feeling or the 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 experience of having that job and um there's training to go along with it so in order to get my u.s coast guard license i had to take shipboard firefighting training and pass a test i had to take first aid training i had to take all of these different tests um to be able to handle those different circumstances so while no one had predicted that Mariners were just going to spontaneously converge on Manhattan Island and evacuate nearly 500,000 people. That was never in the in the thought uh, or the planning. Um, the Mariners had an incredible array of professionalism skills and professionalism that really they were able to marshal in that split second moment. And there are examples, so many incredible stories of people making just just instantaneous decisions that charted the course for some for at least one other person's life and usually many many other people's lives and just transformed their lives because of somebody making a decision in this moment and and the rules thing that you brought up is also really important because there was such creative rule breaking <laughs> and responsible rule breaking and even later in the game when the US Coast Guard got involved which was about 10:45 they actually were sort of on scene helping to coordinate this evacuation that was already underway there were actually there was a Coast Guard lieutenant who over and over again was saying yeah okay you can overload your boat which is not <laughs> something that the Coast right. Guard usually says right but it's yeah. it's interesting uh I'm gonna have you read from the book because that'll give people a sense of the human experience of, of doing this thing but yeah. um I'm aware that who I was as a therapist let's say when I started in you know 1970 uh <laughs> is not the same person I am now I trust my instincts more you know I know where to bend not to bend, all of that kind of thing. Um, right. And so the experience probably made the improvisation more um, writer in a sense, or, or more relevant, more helpful, perhaps. Yeah, or, or well-advised, right? Well-advised, so exactly. Yes. That's the way to put yes. it. Yeah. Could you, could you share the part of your book about Glenn Dorn as just a, just a little... Um, uh, a little example of the stories you include in the book. It's such a poignant story. Absolutely. Marine engineer Glenn Dorn made his way to the bow just as deckhands hoisted up a little girl in a pink dress. This was the first child child that I'd seen, he explained. She looked about five years old. The deckhands didn't set her on her feet. Instead, they handed her to Dorn, who held the girl in his arms. Next over the side was a woman in her 20s, thin with sandy blonde hair and very noticeably very pregnant in summer clothes. She was just like a zombie with a totally blank stare. I said, just follow me. And she did. My name is Glenn, he said to the girl, wanting to reassure her. What's your name? Natalie, she said. Where are we going? 
The sun is shining and the weather is warm, so we're going for a little boat ride, he replied, leading the two toward the stern bits at the back of the boat. Set down here, he said to the mother, indicating a coil of eight-inch line that sat about a foot and a half off the deck, figuring it would be a bit softer than the hard steel. He placed the girl beside her. Is there anything I can do to help make you more comfortable, he said. The woman sat mute. The little girl, the little girl pointed at the smoke column rising from where the towers once stood. My daddy works there. With that, the mother crumpled. You could have turned on a spigot and it would have been less water than the tears coming down her face, Dorn recalled. He handed her some napkins from the galley, then knelt down beside them, offering the only other thing he could. I'll say a little prayer for your husband. That collision of catastrophe, you know, with professionalism, that was a human thing he offered. Um, which, of course, had called him there, I guess. It had called everyone there, yes? Right, yes. Um, but nonetheless, who, whoever interacts in that way with the captain of a boat, it's, it's pretty rare, <laughs> I would think. Um, and at that, at that level, what a, perhaps his first experience of the, of the human cost that was going to, first personal experience of the human cost that was going to be clear with such a disaster. It's, it's definitely true. And especially, you know, he's a Marine engineer on a tugboat. And so, yes, he interacts with the, the crewmates and, you know, then, then there's crew change and there's another crew who comes on and he interacts with them. And he had actually been working on Staten Island um, in the shipyard. Um, they were doing some repairs and that's where he actually learned about, the the planes hitting the towers and what's what's really still very moving and and uh, powerful for me to think about even after all this time is that the closer people were to what was unfolding at the world trade center the less they knew about what was going on yes and and there were multiple tugboat captains many work boats work off of staten island and so it, it's hard to explain the geography for folks who aren't familiar with New York Harbor, but basically Staten Island is far enough away that you could really, really see what was going on and how big a disaster this was. And the fact that those captains and crew members and marine engineers like Glenn Dorn saw how catastrophic this was mm. and got in boats and volunteered to go to the island to offer whatever assistance they could, even though they're not ferries, they're tugboats, you know. Right. And it was just this human <sighs> compulsion to 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 help to do what's right. There are people in trouble. I don't know what I can do to help. They like raided their storerooms for anything that might possibly be useful. And they just went and headed straight for the island on fire. And they did that from a vantage point where they could really see the full scale and scope of this. And it's just that that raw human goodness and that um, solidarity and altruism and, and generosity of spirit is, it's just overwhelming to think about what we're capable of. It's, uh, it reminds me of that, of that quote, um, when disaster strikes, look for the helpers, yes. uh, you know, as a way of not getting um, jaded, not getting, um, undone by the terrible things that go on in the world, um, that um, 
you know, a, a crew of people did a horrible, horrible thing. And then more people <laughs> did yeah. helpful things. Um, I, I do rest in that often. Yes. Yes. And, and it is such an important reminder. And I think, I mean, there are many reasons why we get caught up in this narrative of, you know, when when bad things happen, the social order implodes and it's like Lord of the Flies. And this is the narrative that's fed to us over and over again. And, oh, there's looting and rioting and this and that. And certainly these these things do happen. And what actually happens over and over again in disasters, we can see throughout history and significant research, um, even in recent years, has reinforced this. We see over and over again that by and large, first off, the first people at most disasters are not first responders, but because of the way that we're structured as a society, the first people who usually show up when something bad happens are, are other folks. Right? Are regular people who just went through it, too. Absolutely. And, <laughs> and, and they're in, in some sense, well positioned to know exactly what people need. It's like, oh, you need a blanket. Oh, you need a generator. Oh, you need mm. food, you know? And, and so over and over again, we see not only that they're the first ones who show up, but they are, they are actually, they rise to the occasion and help one another. Like that, that's actually more representative of how we respond in these, in these moments. It, you know, it brings up an interesting thing about how much how much news is out there? How much, mm. you know, um, because I, I took on as a practice for a couple of years and I still do it, but more casually. Uh, I just read the paper for um, inspiration. Hmm. And, and I, uh, you know, so I look, look for the stories where someone came through for someone else, basically, or, right. or had a negative experience and then turned it into something, you know, all those kinds yep. of stories. I often was looking on the back page. Yes. And, and so to me, the importance of a book like yours is to highlight, uh, because so much the news is geared towards the terrible. I live in Oakland, California, a beautiful and wonderful place, mm. but that is not what's shared on the news nationally, <laughs> yes. a little more locally, right? <laughs> um, yes. So, you know, it's, it's a truism what we're talking about and it's time for our break, but let's talk about that more when we come back. Excellent. Uh, Thank you. Listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, Instagram, etc. And to find Jessica DeLong, you can either go to Saved at the Seawall, excuse me, any, anywhere you buy your books, or to find out more about her, www.jessicadulong.com. Be back soon. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, Working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page 
or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Resiliency is the human capacity to lean into individual and collective strengths with compassion and grit when faced with the challenges of lived experience. Join host Elaine miller Karras for Resiliency Within, a program of hope and healing designed to inspire you to integrate wellness into your life, your family, and your community. In challenging times, you'll want to tune in every week. Resiliency Within can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones. And I've been talking with Jessica DeLong, author of Saved at the Seawall, Stories from the September 11th Boat Lift. And um, you chose to focus in your book on um, stories from interviews both you and other people conducted. Is that correct? Um, I conducted interviews, um, many, many interviews um, myself. And some of it was more at least it started out more casually because this is my community. And so uh, much of the research that I did also involved, you know, calling up people that I knew and, and having conversations and talking through ideas. Okay. What was the tide doing that day? What was, you know, let's think through like, would it have made sense for them to be starboard side too? And so I was able to draw upon my maritime experience and also my maritime community to be able to identify people to reach out to, to interview, and also to sort of, um, talk through the different stories and and get a larger sense of what was going on. Um, and then I also did do an incredible amount of research with uh, all different kinds of documentation from uh, reports and, um, you know, after incident reports um, to oral histories, listening to recordings of the radio traffic um, that was happening that day. Um, taking advantage of the oral histories that were created by the fire department, by firefighters um, who were on scene that day. So really my, um, there's a huge endnote section at the back of the book that talks, you know, that names all of these different um, sources to come together, to pull this, this story together with, um, with also some context too about the harbor and the population and um, its change over time and how that uh, affected the way that um, events unfolded on that particular day. I, I could really feel all that behind the stories. 
mm-hmm. you know, just a, a breadth of knowledge about maritime history. I had absolutely no idea that was the largest boat launch ever, for mm-hmm. instance. I mean, mm-hmm. it came as a shock, you know, thinking about people, I don't know, getting out of Europe to during World War II or, you know, I, right. I would have sort of thought, well, maybe there's a, you know, the Titanic, whatever. And the, the sheer volume of it just stunned me. And me too. And let me tell you, there were um, so many wildly different numbers that have been thrown at the, you know, how many evacuees came off of the island. And um, and so it was really important to me to really drill down and get the most reliable sources. And I, of course, you know, write through all of that um, in the end notes section. Um, but, you know, there was initially a report by the Coast Guard that it was a million people evacuated. There were reports of it like, you know, maybe 200,000. And at this point, the best number that we have to go on is between 400,000 and 500,000 people. And that's really pretty clearly established. Um, and the, the size is tremendous. The scale is tremendous. But Mm -hmm. the other thing that's also tremendous is the spontaneity of Mm -hmm. this effort. So this um, oftentimes when it gets talked about at all, which was, you know, was largely unspoken and unknown stories um, for many, many, many years. And I feel like the 20th anniversary really opened more people's eyes. Um, part of it was that Spike Lee did um, a documentary call or a docu-series actually called New York City Epicenters. And he was connecting um, the pandemic in New York City, you know, which was a ground zero for the pandemic and, and uh, the events on September 11th. And he actually learned about the boat lift through reading my book, which of course is, you know, as, as somebody who works really, really hard to collect history um, and, and to share it to a wider audience that was hugely moving to me. Um, And so, and he had a whole chapter, um, I think it was chapter six about the boat lift. And so that was a way that this story has been more widely known, which is, Finally, you know, there are there are so uh-huh. many people who have incredible, incredible stories. And it and we've learned, you know, especially recently in these past several years, we've learned how dangerous it is for a country to forget its history and how dangerous it is to um to <laughs> elide really significant events. And so it it's really important to me that these stories have been preserved um, and documented in this way. Um, but what I was going to say is that even beyond the the scale is the improvisational aspect, because many times when people hear the story at all, they think that the Coast Guard orchestrated this thing. And that is yes. not what happened at all. Um, That's was- so clear in your book. So, so, so clear that it was a spontaneous not not uninformed, but spontaneous generation of human outpouring. Absolutely. And and over and over again, people making this decision to help. And the example that really is really striking to me over and over again, um, even after all this time, which can sort of, you know, as a preservation matter, you know, you can sort of numb out. But the thing that gets me is that Okay, so you have this boat captain, this crew, they go, they pick up a bunch of people from this absolutely smoke consumed island, depending on what time in the in the um, chronicle of the day, they come to safer shores, they drop off their passengers. Now they are tied up at a safe shore. 
And nobody knows what's happening next. It's very easy for us to recreate, you know, um, and look back and say, okay, well, this was actually like, you know, nothing bad happened after X point in time, but we, nobody knew didn't that. know this it. Was, yeah. No kidding. No kidding. Cause way yeah. farther afield on the West coast. Yes. I yes. mean, everything shut down immediately. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Nobody knew what was going to happen. And so uh, if you can put yourself in that place and think of these boat crews at safe shores, having dropped off passengers, what did they do? They released their lines. They turned around and they headed back mm, over yes. and over and over and over again. And there was this interview um, that I did with, um, with a Staten Island ferry captain. And he talked about how, you know, Staten Island ferries for folks who don't know are these absolutely enormous bright orange vessels that can hold thousands and thousands of people. It actually used to carry cars back and forth, but that's no longer um, since September 11th. Um, and he was talking about, I felt like I was running a big orange target in the middle of the Harbor, mm. you know, like he really thought that they were going to be next and, you know, shot down or something. And so it's hard to put ourselves back in that time frame where so much was unknown. And obviously there were rumors flying all around about bombs at different important buildings and, um, and, and people just didn't know. And so the fact that immersed in that, not knowing there was still this, like, without even a question, of course, we're going back. There's more people who need help. And interestingly, I would say, I'm going to have you share a little more from the book in a second, but I would say that, our human brains are, are on one level um, built to do that mm -hmm. because we're a community, right? And, pe yes. and human beings could not survive without each other for a long, 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 long time. Right. Uh, the, the lonely outpost would not make it, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? And so I feel there is some hard wiring, but we forget it so often and, and fear or whatever else over overwhelms it or, or diminishes it. But in this case, it's so visible um, that, that that period of time right after that, there was such a sense of community, you yes. know, uh, of course, then the, you know, the rest happens later, but, right. <laughs> you know, as we yes. could well document, but we're not here to talk about that part, but um, maybe you can share. So one thing that stood out is I had not, even though I did know something about, you know, boats taking people across and everything, I had never considered that they were actually evacuating terribly wounded people. Um, yes. People who got so afraid they jumped in the water, uh, you know, that um, the people who got on those boats, especially in the very early um, hours, uh, were not in good shape. And and that that yes. was also part of the situation. And um, I think this this next excerpt captures some of that feeling, um, not about someone who is wounded, but someone who is very challenged, you know, yes. uh, can you share the story of Tammy Wiggs? Yes, absolutely. The plume of gray black smoke had thickened and swelled, mushrooming up as the South Tower crumbled down. The wave of dust cauliflowered up and out, shattering windows and blowing out the immense panes of glass in the dome of the nearby winter garden. 
The mass barreled down and Tammy Wiggs struggled to draw breath. She gulped what air she could from the choking cloud that had engulfed her, then released her grip on the rail at the small of her back. She reached blindly for the hand of the woman beside her. Then together, they jumped. Time stretched as the two plunged through the dense black air, split seconds sprawled into an eternity. A fraction of an instant later, Wiggs's four foot three, sorry, five foot three inch, 120 pound frame plunged into the river. Cold seized her chest. Frantic to flee, she kicked back to the surface, stretching her body long, clawing at the water. But after a few strokes, she faltered. The current was ripping. It tugged her downstream. The pall of black smoke, thick with particulates, a clenched hand covering her nose and mouth, left her gasping. The airless sky above the river's surface offered no oxygen, so Tammy Wiggs dove. I couldn't breathe at all because of the smoke and particles. I went under the water hoping to find oxygen, she explained. It doesn't make any sense, I know, but that was the desperation. There is no oxygen left in this air, so the only other thing to try is under the water. She kicked off her shoes, but clung to her purse. I knew my ID was in there. I wanted my parents to have my ID to identify my body. When finally the air lightened from coal black to haze gray, Wiggs spotted the pointed bow of a boat, its maroon hull about 15 feet away. Thinking that the vessel was underway, she panicked. She worried about getting chopped up by the propellers. We're in the water, we're in the water, she screamed over and over again. Who's in the water? A voice called back through the fog. I can just imagine my way into those weird decisions you make in a moment like that, like holding on to her purse. <laughs> you know? Yes. Um, and the people who jumped yes. uh, from the building. Um, yes. Many people I've heard say, I can't even imagine that. But in that moment, obviously some very visceral part of those people saw it as a better alternative. Yeah, I, that was a really, really challenging part of the story to, um, to chronicle, to research. Um, and I did it in my first book for the first time, um, in my earlier book, I should say, um, My River Chronicles, Rediscovering the Work That Built America. And um, just capturing that horror and realizing, trying to think about it in a different way. And I read a lot of, um, read and heard a lot of um, loved ones of people who had um, come out of the building um, talk about, you know, it, it being better, it being better than being in the building. And so I like to think about it as them choosing the sky. Mm -hmm. And some kind of per perhaps obviously pretty irrational but a thought perhaps i i'm only imagining i imagine my way into people's minds a lot in my yeah. in my world but um sure. maybe you know you don't have a chance in there right so right. you know i think humans will take a chance uh yeah Maybe, maybe I can fly in the window two stories down or, you know, who knows what went on in people's minds. Yeah, um, absolutely. But um, the point you made earlier, I wanted to pick up on, too, about the injured people. Um, and this is also a piece of the story that a lot of times gets um, left out. Um, so I'm so glad you mentioned it, that 
that especially early on, even if this, even if the first plane hitting the first tower had been a terrible accident, it was already a an emergency, a huge emergency situation, not just for the people in the building, but for the people who had um, basically immediately you have jet fuel pouring down the uh, the elevator shafts. You have all of these people with very severe burns. You have people with shards of glass in them and many, many people. The, the first thing that they did and actually the quickest way to get any kind of help was on the boats. And there are ferries who routinely, that's their ferry slip. And so they were there first um, because they that's where they pick up and drop off. And um, so these ferry crews in particular and others, other vessel crews as well, but they applied their first aid knowledge. They, you know, used all of their equipment to help treat um, or at least stabilize people so that they could bring them to triage centers, which were ended up being set up all along the Jersey waterfront. And, and mm. just for folks who don't know, there's basically about a mile between the, the west uh west seawall of manhattan the you know western shore and then um new jersey and um and so that work that they did delivering people instantaneously practically it's very very short ferry ride especially if you're gunning it and um it really <laughs> saved so many lives um, because this was a grave incident from the first second and you know having lived there obviously i have a different perspective because I lived there as a child. <laughs> That's a very mm. different thing. But it always seemed like Jersey is is so far away psychologically from New York, you yes. know. Um, yeah. But this experience intrinsically tied the two places. And I know it's tied by people commuting and that sort of thing. But um, it was one human experience at that point, wasn't it? It really was, and and um, that shared humanity, and and you you were talking a bit about that earlier, that that human impulse, the fact that we absolutely depend upon each other, that we are a social species. I mean, even if some of us are antisocial, myself included, sometimes. Um, you know, we, that's a we, different thing. <laughs> that's a, that is a different thing. But we we absolutely need each other, and if the one of the parts that has been so affecting for me to be able to talk about this story on the 20th anniversary, um, which was in September, during a global pandemic. I mean, yes. it's just really overwhelming because there's nothing like a global pandemic to make it incredibly clear that we are all, all absolutely connected. interconnected and interdependent. I do not want to shorten this conversation because I've thought about this every day the last almost two years. So mm -hmm. I would really like to spend more time with that, um, with that knowledge that that is contained in both experiences. So let's take a break and then come back to that. Excellent. And listeners, you can go find me at my weatherandgrief.com website, the Good Grief host page. And to find Jessica DeLong's book, go to any bookseller, uh, Saved at the Seawall is the name, and www.jessicadelong.com is her website. Be back soon. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. 
Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins looks at how natural healing and biological dentistry can safely and effectively treat most health problems. You'll hear about the innovations in both traditional and alternative medicine therapies with doctors and dentists, along with discussions with chiropractors, medical experts, homeopaths, naturopaths, and energetic healers. It's great to have all the best information in one place. And Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins brings it all together. Listen Thursdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I've been talking with Jessica DeLong, author of Saved at the Seawall. And Jessica, before the break, uh, we started diving into the connection between what I too have noticed during this pandemic, you know, what I've been so, so keenly aware of Mm. and what that time taught, which is that we're, we're connected. We're, we're, um, and we have the human capability to help each other or to not help each other. Um, and you know, the a moment of crisis tends to bring out the helpers. Uh, It it really, it really does. Yes. I'm sorry. Were you going to go on? Well, and then, and then sometimes as people get off of the initial place, they forget that that's the heart of it, right? That we can help each other. And then, you know, whose fault was it? Who did it? You know, all that other stuff. Right. Um, just kicks right in. And, and I, I do see that now myself. Um, how do you make those connections in your own mind? Um, for me, um, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the book and I'm thinking about, um, it was incredibly painful for me to try to find a way to write the preface for this um, edition. And it was in the, the height of the early pandemic. And I was just overwhelmed and, you know, as we all were, as many of us were. Um, and, uh, and for me, the, 
the connections, I couldn't tell if these things were actually connected or if it was just me. And so it took a long time for me to realize or to not realize, but actually be confident in the fact that these things are absolutely connected because Mm -hmm. they are moments where there is a before and there's an after and there is no return to the before. Yes. Like that, that is gone. And if we had any delusions that we might be able to return to the before that that has been annihilated certainly with omicron right um in the global pandemic and there was absolutely a before and an after for so so many of us on september 11th um because it was a shattering of the national sense of innocence i would not say we were innocent Um, right (laughs) the the um, illusion that we that we were insulated at the very least Yes, yes. And so these these ruptures, I, I wrote about this in the preface, these ruptures caused by historic events like terrorist attacks and pandemics, they leave us reeling, struggling to grasp what it means to survive, to remake our lives in the aftermath. And really what I've come to hold on to pretty, pretty uh, vehemently is that our best hope arises out of respecting our scars, respecting the damage. And I think this connects with so much of what you talk about on this show. So the scars are the evidence of our ability to persevere, to Mm -hmm. build the future out of the past, because each of those scars, each of those wounds has a story. and, um, And those stories are how we make meaning of what has happened to us, make meaning of our losses, our grief. And I, I really feel like those stories are the only thing that's going to save us at this moment, um, because we need to we need those stories to be able to empathize and connect with other people, especially those who are not like us, um, mm-hmm. to realize that actually we are just all human beings with the exact same desires for love and security and safety and happiness. You know, I mean, that we yes. are all just animals walking this planet with those needs. That's that's who we are. Uh, yes, absolutely. I was I was noticing something at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, once I thought it through, it didn't surprise me. But I was noticing that the people I work with who've had um, really significant loss, but have chosen to go forward, make something out of it, like the people mm-hmm. I have on this show, we were doing better. And at first it was a little mystifying, like you'd think the person who's, you know, I I don't know, you'd you'd think the person who's more privileged maybe would have been doing better, right? But who hadn't had as much stuff. But it didn't turn out to be true because, uh, I'll speak for myself, I've had deep experiences of being out of control of events. And so my first thought is, okay, how am I going to navigate this and what am I going to learn from it? Right. <laughs> you know, it's not right. like I'm happy about it, but that's my gear. That's my way of thinking. And so I didn't get too caught up in how do we get back there or, you know, because who knew? Um, right. So I do think there is something to be gained from that. And you've said something interesting in the book. I'll have you read one more excerpt after I after I share this. Um, you said that although some people had gone on to get terribly ill from the toxins, you know, whatever had happened uh, as a result that was negative and traumatic, mm. I think you said something like no one regretted doing it. Everyone was oh. glad they did it. And yes. I thought that was very beautiful and and evocative of 
these kinds of experiences, you know, do I wish my wife died? Well, no, of course I don't. Right. But am I glad I found a way forward? And I'm, am I glad I didn't leave her when she was ill? 100%. (laughs) You know, Um, so to me, it's that kind of paradigm. That's a personal, you know, uh, individual thing, but I think it applies broader when we come through for each other. We, we don't regret it. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm actually working on a story right now uh, for CNN um, about uh, empathy. And um, some of the research that I'm looking at right now actually bears that out, that it talks about how people who have gone through traumatic experiences are actually more likely to help others, especially others who've gone through a similar experience. So you mm-hmm. see this with addiction, you, um, where people are helping other folks who are struggling with addiction. You see this with veterans helping other veterans with PTSD issues. You see this um, with sexual assault and people coming together to support each other through the after math of that and and it is it is so interesting to think about it's almost like there's this uh tuned up awareness for that particular kind of suffering that that arises out of one's own difficult experience that allows them to connect and almost like you know sort of hone in on the experience of others and also feel that they have something to contribute feel that that they have a like a uh an instinct to help, but also that they, they, that what they've gone through and what they've learned from what they've gone through could be of some value to somebody else. And, and that's remarkable. Well, and of course, that's where I live. You're talking my language right, right now. <laughs> right, know, right, right. 100%. I think it's also that when you've, when you've had calamitous experience and you live and you go forward, it mm-hmm. right sizes what you can handle and what you can't. Mm-hmm. I was a mm-hmm. much more anxious person before I went through all that, actually. Right. Uh, and, and afterwards, I was kind of like, well, I can listen to someone talk about grief. You know, <laughs> right. I mean, uh, it just changed my relationship to difficulty completely. And mm. what, what I was willing to, um, to endure for a good cause, I guess. That's a um, really lovely way to put it. And I think, yeah, that that I definitely saw with the Mariners over and over again. And, and one particular individual comes to mind very strongly who, you know, they do it again tomorrow is, is the is the quote. But he he literally lost his career. Um, he had always wanted like went off to sea at age 17 or something and like forged his papers or something and had always wanted to be a mariner, had been working as a mariner that day. And because of health uh, effects of of going back and forth in uh, in the cloud, not just on that day, but in the aftermath as well, because the ferries were called to duties that went on um, for, mm. for many, many weeks. Um and many people don't realize that there were fires burning for four months yes, down there. Yes. Um, and so those conditions remained. So he uh, became very ill and lost his career. And even still, he will tell you that um, that he wouldn't he wouldn't change a thing because the the importance to him of being able to help in that way and to actually, you know, to, to be able to help was in a, in a sense of privilege. At least that's how I felt about it when I was in service at Ground Zero was that I desperately wanted to help when I was stuck in Brooklyn and I felt helpless. And so mm, having yes. a way to help 
was incredibly uh, uh, just sustaining um, and so much better than than not. You know, that was a terrible the, feeling uh, that you uh, you've put your finger on something I think is so important that actually the worst part of of going forward, the thing that makes going forward after a, a loss, a big experience like this is often regret. Like if you felt right. called to do it and you didn't do it, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, and you got scared and avoided, that's what people talk about over and over. Mm. Uh, I, I want you to just share one more excerpt before we go. We're running out of time. We only have a couple more minutes, but I think we have enough time. Uh, yes. Could you read about Rich Varela? Absolutely. Telecom specialist Rich Varela had already reached New Jersey aboard fireboat John Dean McKean when he heard the collective gasp from those around him. He'd been choked in the cloud of the South Tower falling. Now the North Tower crumpled to the ground. All right, Varela said to himself, this could be it, man. This could be the last day of New York as we know it. The firefighters aboard McKean were frantic to offload passengers so they could return to the smoking ruins. Our guys are there, Varela recalled them, shouting. I'm coming with you, Varela said. You guys need help. Without waiting for them to refuse, he jumped back aboard the boat. During the short trip across the river toward the wreckage, Varela's thoughts wavered between contemplating the dead and reconciling himself to the concept that this day might be his last. It really felt like I might die today, and I was okay with it. These guys need help, he thought, and that was it. He spent the rest of the day stretching hose lines from the river to the fires still blazing, shirtless ever since he'd torn up his shirt for fellow passengers to use as a makeshift dust mask. Varela now wore a life vest he'd gotten from the boat. I looked like a bandito with this thing around my face, he later explained. Varela followed every order. Take this line run it this way, grab this line, hook it up there, run with it. Before long, the hose lines reached their destination and fireboat McKean began pumping Hudson River water to land-based companies. You know, I, I've had this subjective experience, which I have no way of ever confirming, but it's where I want to end, which is that I always had experienced New York when I lived there and visiting as as quite a harsh place. I'm mm. I'm kind of a sensitive, so you know mm. I would I would feel that part of it. When I went back after 9/11, it felt softer to me. Mm. And I don't mm. know if that's real or you know some kind of thing. I but it just felt as if people were um, a little more concerned about each other, I guess. Um, and I hope that's true. I hope that these terrible things that obviously also uh, result in negative consequences of, um, especially in politics and stuff, um, that maybe there's a, there's a softening that happened for a lot of people too, um, of, of feeling connected with each other. I hope that comes out of the pandemic. I, I already see it coming out of the pandemic. I mean, there are free fridges throughout Brooklyn in my neighborhood. There are these community garden projects where people, you know, now stuck at home, grew food and uh -huh. all work together outside to grow food to feed people. So I, I, 
I'm seeing that in, in real it, time. Isn't that a great place for us to end for today, Jessica? Absolutely. <laughs> As we two have optimistic people, right? <laughs> Realistic <laughs> optimists. That's what we'll call us, huh? <laughs> Thanks we are so, so interconnected. We have to, we have to pay attention to these things. Yes. Thank Amen you so to that. Much. Thanks so much for being with me today. I really appreciate this. Thank you. And if you want to find Jessica DeLong, of course, go look at her book, Saved at the Seawall, or go to her website, jessicadelong.com. Next week, I'll have Megan Rorden Jarvis, an author and host of the podcast, Grief is My Side Hustle. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.